This is the Musial Mental Health Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Lee McKenzie today, who is based down in the southwest of England. Lee is a Perry teacher specialising in cello, violin, piano and viola, because he is that talented. Uh, he is also one of the Last Inklings band and also works very closely with a band called Nine Barrow, who were BBC Folk Award nominees. Uh, he is also a cello, vocal and composer session musician. Amongst other many talents, he also runs two podcasts, one of which will be starting very soon, and we'll hear a bit more about that later on, along with a degree in marketing and social media management, amongst other things. Welcome, Lee! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Of course, no one knows how well I play any of those instruments. So. <laughs> <laughs> if if any of the experience that I've had of listening to your music is anything to go by, I'm sure very, very well. My goodness. Uh, well, I, I'll take that. I'll take that one. You should do. You should do. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing all sorts about your career up to now and your experience within the music industry in various different parts of it. But I'm also really excited to hear about this new podcast that you'll be starting that's also to do with musician mental health. So just to get us started, would you mind telling the listeners a bit more about yourself and how you came to music as a career eventually? My, my origin story as a musician is uh, it's quite an easy one because it's been told many times, but I had uh, a close friend from school, primary school, and uh, we got to college together. And he was an amazingly massive, huge fan of Damien Rice and all of his music, especially the album O. And of course, Damien Rice had a cellist, Vivian Long, who used to work with him alongside Lisa Hannigan. And he said, surely you can do that. And uh, we, we knew my grandmother had a cello that needed restoring, but First and foremost, it meant nipping down the road to buy a half-sized cello, which I played dutifully as a six-foot, 17-year-old uh, <laughs> for the better part of two years. Uh, but yeah, the, the first thing that got me into playing live on stage was Damien Rice. And, you know, I'd had a cello in my hands for two or three weeks, and then we got up on stage and just did it, because why not? Oh, fantastic. I love Damien Rice, particularly the song Cannonball. I think it's beautiful. Oh, yes. Superb. So... Tell me a bit more about how you entered the industry career-wise, coming from that half-size cello right the way up to having such a vast experience within the music industry now, because you've worked on so many different parts. I mean, you definitely have what I would define as a portfolio career. Even whilst I was at college, uh, there weren't many other cellists floating around our area. I lived down in Dorset. Um, we have a wonderful orchestra, the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra, but the kind of work they were doing didn't really cross over with maybe local singer-songwriters who were recording at some of the local studios. And I sort of became the go-to person. And one of my first tastes of recording was working with uh, that band, with Alex Beds and Fern, uh, on that kind of Damien Rice-style material, the originals. And from there, you know, you start meeting producers, you start meeting recording engineers, and when you're remembered for playing that random instrument, uh, it's quite easy to start getting in the door. I think one of my first kind of big pieces was when a lady called Andrea Soler, amazing Australian musician, uh, was in this country recording, uh, I think it was a debut album, and I was invited to be the cellist on that recording, and it just really opened my eyes to what it was to, to work in a really professional studio. Brilliant. I mean, that just sounds incredible. 
Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about the teaching work that you do, because I mean, to be teaching so many different instruments across the board requires so many different skills. So tell me a bit more about that. I think it helps that I was playing lots of things all at the same time. So when I got my first cello, I also had a violin lying around and I was trying to, I'd had lessons on the violin. I was trying to adapt that technique to the cello. And, you know, once you've gone between those two extremes of size, it's quite easy to sneak the viola in the middle once you've learned that extra left just for fun. And because so many of my friends were musicians, we were always in these settings where there was something lying about in the corner that you could pick up and have a go on. Uh, and that kind of led me to being able to have a bit of genuine experience on double bass, viola, violin, cello, and piano in all these different settings. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to really polish one of them, and the first one for me was the cello. Sure. I mean, it's just got the most incredible sound, the cello. Um, I mean, I'm obviously a, a violinist, for those that don't know me, and it was that was the only instrument I ever wanted to play string wise because my mum told me you can play anything provided we already have it in the house and <laughs> I came from quite a musical family so there was there was a pretty varied choice to go from but it was always the violin for me so in terms of where you studied did you study music at any point or do a degree in music or are you mostly self-taught I'd love to know a bit more about that see originally with the cello I was entirely self-taught and then I had the good luck at college to have uh, tuition from Joanna Hanna. Uh, she was with the former symphony orchestra, an incredible cellist, but an amazing teacher. And uh, it, the lovely thing about working with her was, although she's very much in the classical sphere, she had a huge love of early music, which definitely rubbed off. And um, she was happy to teach me technique that I could then apply to, to jazz and pop and all the different genres, which made a big difference to me because outside of the classroom, I was mainly playing with my friends who were singer-songwriters, so I really wanted that connection. Uh, and then I carried on studying through college and made the decision at some point I wanted to be an archaeologist, and I studied archaeology and prehistory for my degree uh, before coming back to music. But then a lot of the theory knowledge that I had, a lot of that, that's self-taught. That's a lot of time kind of listening to a lot of jazz musicians, learning about the harmony of jazz and applying that to a lot of other things. So, yeah, that was, that was a bit of an exploration under my own steam. So there's been this kind of real experiential learning for you rather than um, just purely being taught. That's, that's really interesting. Um, what would you say um, has been your highest point within your career? What would you say was the absolute pinnacle of your career so far? And then to counter that, what would you also say was the kind of lowest point within your career? An absolute high point. Uh, we, as a, as a band, I used to work with a band, a trio called Cadia. And we went along to Cambridge Folk Festival one year, took our instruments, and we were just there to have a bit of fun. And uh, we joined the infamous queue. Now, if you join this queue and you outlast everyone else, uh, you have the chance to be invited to play a short session, uh, which was amazing. I mean, it was great networking, and we, and we made genuine friends in that, that queue uh, as it rained almost over six hours, uh, sharing umbrellas. <laughs> but as a result of that, out of nowhere, we were invited to play on stage two at Cambridge Folk Festival and then to come back on stage and play with Brian McNeil in, in the session with so many other bands who are still our contemporaries now. That was just amazing. But to look out at those thousands of people and have such a professional sound team kind of plug you in before you'd even sat down in your chair, that kind of thing. It was amazing. It's like having a pit stop in the F1, but the music. <laughs> so what would you say was the, the lowest point within your career so far? 
low points, almost always it's those points where a project has just, just come to a stop. Um, the first one, uh, the band I was working with to begin with, Alex Beds and Fern, uh, playing all that Damien Ricey style material. Uh, that was 12 years, I think, when we finally kind of called it uh, and had a farewell gig. Uh, but the other one, the more recent one, would have been my trio, Cadia. I was really involved in the writing and kind of creating the music there. And it, it did hit hard when we finally came to a bit of a grinding halt. But I mean, it couldn't be helped. There were people moving on to different bits of their lives, setting up and having families and things and moving away from that area. But it was still sad to see it go. And, and it does leave a void where you wonder, am I ever going to have this again? Is it going to come back? Will I be able to enjoy things in the same way? Because you have that rapport as musicians together on stage. And there's this fear, like any relationship, you might not be able to repeat that. Of course, of course. It's such a personal relationship you have with musicians that you conjure up over a number of years, particularly when you're working on personal material, something that you've actually given a piece of yourself to, not just as a performer, but also as a writer. And I think as time goes on, you become this kind of dysfunctional family almost with all, you know, warts and all type relationship. And yeah, it is always really disappointing when the inevitability of time moves everybody on. And you think, how am I ever going to repeat that? Because time is something that is so such a large factor in actually making all of that possible and it's not something that can be rushed so is that something you'd say you've found now with you know other bands that you're working with or is it something that you've experienced even as a session musician when you're stepping into other people's music periodically i kind of find it easier uh, in a session sense to to have a little bit of detachment quite often those relationships last for the period of hours that you meet each other in the studio which it's really interesting because you're trying to develop a great rapport as quickly as possible and kind of pick each other apart so you can work together. But at the same time, it doesn't have that lasting imprint. But I mean, one of the takeaways moving on to the project I'm with now, as a trio, we were uh, guitar, mandolin and cello mainly. And my mandolinist, I still work with, I still work with the wonderful David Hoyland, who is a bit of a bluegrass aficionado, really, with his mandolin licks, which is good fun. But that, that saved something for me, for us both to still be working together and creating new things together did kind of heal that a little bit. Yeah, it can, it can go one of two ways at times as well, because if you've got um, juxtaposing ideas about where you want a piece of music to go, it can sour a relationship very quickly. But then when you find the magic where you're both heading in the same direction, or one of you brings something slightly different to the table that the other wasn't expecting and it makes it even better. That's such a powerful thing, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we both strive for is this sort of text painting, I suppose, in, in the music when we're writing something that's, that's quite lyrical. We almost want that feeling of the lyrics to be there if you were to strip all the words away. And the, the interesting thing comes when both of us might not instantly agree on the way that we create that colour, but that discourse is where something really magic happens. Totally. So yeah, always enjoy that process. Totally. I'm, I'm really intrigued. I've asked a few people this now. Do you, as a composer, as you as an individual, do you tend to start with the music or with the lyrics? Wh which, which way would you go when you're writing? With the current project, with The Last Inklings, it's almost always lyrics. Uh, and they're not even attached to melodies necessarily. Uh, and then from there, we're thinking about what images are being conjured up. How do we make it feel a certain way? So those lyrics are our springboard. Uh, 
but then the kind of comp composition I would do under my own steam, string quartets and things, I tend to be approaching that from a melody perspective, unless it's a bit of a challenge I've set myself, and then I might be thinking of a jazz harmony that I want to turn into some big plantation. No, I love that. I have never written songs. I don't feel qualified in any way to be able to write my own lyrics. I overthink everything far too much. Um, so I'm much more of an arranger than a composer. Um, and I've always been fascinated by people who can just write song after song after song. And I okay. still love that. I mean, I, I really appreciate singer songwriters and I'm not one of them. Um, I am an overthinker lyrically as well. Absolutely. And a lot of my lyrics, if you were to pick them apart, are about the act of overthinking. I kind of approach it uh, from, well, an autistic perspective, really. And so the kind of metaphors that I might use when I'm writing lyrics aren't necessarily about a feeling, but they're trying to, to explain to someone the situation that might help them have the feeling as well. Um, so, yeah, lyrically, I'm in a strange place, maybe. I'd be intrigued to talk a bit more about that because when you and I worked together at the Bourne Academy and we were sharing kind of teaching concepts and pedagogy and all this kind of thing, we were, you would refer to the autistic brain quite a lot and the way that that would focus. I would love to know a bit more about how music and songwriting is for you as someone with autism. Am I right in saying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've always on the, on the part of the spectrum that I sit on, uh, I've long known that I was very alexithymic, which is just a posh word for being unable to label my own feelings. Um, okay. And I was, I was awful at all of this when I was still 17, 18. And my social relationships were absolute pants uh, because I just couldn't interpret so many things. Uh, but with kind of therapy support, stuff like that, it really opened up. But I really started to latch on to things. Uh, there was a scheme where it was only one pound to go to the orchestra uh, to go and see the BSO on a Wednesday night and sitting in some of those concerts suddenly it hit me to be there in the room with an orchestra that kind of sound and I recognized all these kinds of sensations in myself that logically stepping back that that's emotional feelings that's an emotional outpouring in response to music and I kind of found the language there so other people could describe a piece of music as something beyond just happy or sad and being sat there with them, listening to it and having those feelings, suddenly you can adopt those labels yourself. And, and for me, that was my pathway to opening up a little bit more, being a bit more empathetic towards myself, if that makes sense, but also developing it that does. empathy musically. It does. It totally does. That's it's, I've always found that um, music really is the universal language and the, the only other kind of universal language uh, that I've come across is maths. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that makes me laugh because I'm dreadful at maths. I'm absolutely <laughs> dreadful at maths. It just doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I think because it is so logical versus creative and with maths, there is a right or a wrong answer. Whereas with music, there is no correct or one way of thinking about it. It's something that everybody can relate to, but in their own personal way. Yeah, definitely. And um... I mean, a bit of me wishes that the old kind of figure in Lyra of the, the Baroque period were absolutely real things that you could just rely on every time. So, you know, if you want to express this feeling, try using this figure. They had whole tables for this. But I mean, in reality, it does, does feel like you can encode the DNA of a feeling into a symphony in a way that you can't just describing it without maybe being a bit more poetic. 
which is where I fail completely. I, <laughs> my ability to be a poet is not up there. Failure is such a strong word, Lee. We all have our our um, talents and our things that we need to work on. And for those for those things that we need to work on, that's why the beauty of working in an ensemble is there, because it means you've got somebody else who will likely have that skill. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And uh, I, I love working with good singer-songwriters, uh, great lyricists. Uh, for that reason, I mean, I've been working on an opera piece for years now that's it was being written before I was even born and it's come to fruition in the last three years. Wow. Uh, but it's amazing to hear someone who can really bring a whole story together and the lyrics really get across what's happening at every point and the emotions of those people having that journey. And uh, we're working on another piece uh, about in the future, but you know, I can recognize that skill when it's in front of me and it's, it's lovely to be involved in it. So as someone with autism, what would you say apart from the kind of emotional labeling that it's been able to give you what would you say music has brought to you as an individual that has autism music taught me patience definitely um i recognized that i wasn't going to get up to the same level as some of my peers if i didn't just kind of knuckle down and spend the time practicing and it was a real barrier to start with to think so this one scale i've got to play that multiple times despite sort of getting it right first time it was, the, the discipline involved was incredible um, and then having other people kind of give those little hints, like, you'll never listen to me, but here's a bit of advice I wish I could follow when I was your age. Uh, try playing your scales this way or try approaching this exercise like this. And starting to learn that actually I should be listening to those experienced people around me and uh, taking away bits that I thought applied to me from some of those conversations. But yeah, discipline, motivation, sticking out things and learning to get through those points where you just thought, no, nah, I'm never going to achieve this. And is that something that you feel you really bring to your own teaching now as someone who's actually educating the future generation of musicians? I think I try, well, I try and do it consciously, like trying to get across to my pupils, not necessarily um, teaching them how to play a piece of music, but teaching them how they can teach themselves to play that piece of music. That's so key because when they leave me, when they move on from secondary school, for example, hopefully they've got the skills to still be able to, to practice because that, that's a hard thing to do, to know how to practice, and how yes. to figure something out. And I want them to have that skill set. Yeah, having that self-motivation, like you say before, and that drive and that grit and resilience to push through when something's actually quite difficult. If you don't have the key skills to be able to practice and self-reflect and think, right, okay, well, I've done that there. It didn't quite work. This is why, and this is how I'm going to fix it but then also recognizing that's not going to happen instantly. You know, there are some things you will find easier than others, but you've got to stick at it if you want to achieve it. And you have to be kind to yourself as well. I know maybe that sounds a bit soft, but it's teaching my students as well that it's okay to fail. It's okay to make some mistakes. Um, knowing that you've made a mistake is an amazing thing because it's going to show you where you might need to go back and have a look at things even taking that through to their stagecraft. When they play in recitals, I had a wonderful occasion once where it took a long time to persuade this particular student to get up on the stage. And she walked out proudly from the wings, smiling at the audience, carried on across the stage and disappeared into the opposite wing, still smiling and waving. <laughs> but it was a first step. She got up on stage and she started. And from there, we'd look at ways to kind of reset if you're a bit nervous, not to panic too much about a fumble. It's okay to take a breath. Learn. Being in the moment with it is fine. 
and you can't can't be uh, mad at yourself afterwards just for a little slip up no you've got to enjoy it absolutely not do you know that's just reminded me of the first time that i ever had stage fright and it was during a dance recital when i was about three and uh I forgot to jump backwards with all the other ones, um, with all the other children that I was dancing with. We had this line where you had to jump backwards and um, I got completely mystified by all the people staring at me in the audience. So apparently I just stood there gaping at everybody. So people started laughing and I picked up the front of my skirt and turned and walked off the stage in floods of tears. And uh, my mum was there legging it going, oh, my child, my child, <laughs> like legging it backstage. and. Um, I did actually go back on and with a big Good. smile on my face, I think my dance teachers encouraged me to go back on and I got a big round of applause and that stuck with me because I remember being on stage when that happened. And isn't it fascinating how just those little experiences from a young age can have such a powerful effect on you as you get older, whether you decide to do music as a career or not? Yeah, it's something you can take with you into all sorts of spheres. Like, um... I think some of our, our scholars at the academy where I work, um, it was the first time they had ever played in front of anyone. And they were playing an instrument that they'd had in their hands with, with some sort of group lesson for about eight hours. And they, they all commented that after kind of getting through that barrier of just standing up and, and having fun with it, they found public speaking much easier when they had to do that the next day. They said, you know, if I can play a violin in front of people after eight hours, I speak every day, I can speak in front of people. Wow. And I think that was amazing. That confidence was just incredible. That is absolutely fascinating. So tell me a bit more about this project that you're doing at the Academy. So we've uh, had support from the Music and Secondary Sports Trust, and they've allowed us to buy an instrument for, to begin with, all of our scholars, and they are some of the best students at the Academy I work at. It was a group of about 30, and it was quite sporadic because of the way their scholar programme worked, but we were able to work with them about two hours a week, every other week, and take them from never having held, some of them, any instrument at all, to learning how a violin works, making sound in so many different ways, pizzicato and bowing, and even learning to read notation. Some of them were happy reading uh, open strings on sheet music within about 60 minutes, which I thought was incredible. And just getting them used to this idea that, you know, they together they can do something incredible, listening to each other, not rushing, trying to stay together as a group and supporting each other as they're learning. They could do more than they could ever have achieved just on their own. And it was incredible to watch, really. That all sounds incredible. So this music department that you're working with at the Bourne Academy, are you able to tell me a bit more about it? Is this their first experience of classical music or is there already quite a, a thriving and ever-growing music department there? The music department is incredible. I think it's almost kind of the flagship thing about school. and uh, We hear it spoken about so often, it's amazing. Uh, and we've got a great contemporary uh, kind of music ethos at the moment. There are, there's always band shows when we get to the summer and the last one was incredible. But, but yeah, the kids just loved it and they really rocked it. But we want to blend the kind of classical instruments into that contemporary sphere, as well as touching on kind of classical repertoire because I think this was something I struggled with at one point in my career when I was much younger, this kind of almost elitism, you know, as a classical um, instrument, as a cellist, I should be paying attention to classical music and paying no heed to the heathens playing their contemporary pop songs. Uh, but at the school, we're, we're trying to cut that down 
Um, we had some great students uh, last year who've moved on now from year 13. Uh, one of them was a really gifted violin player and her final piece, she looped under her own steam, uh, bass guitar, followed by a gorgeous electric guitar, uh, vocals, percussion and violin, and then her voice uh, on top again, a lead vocal to create something magic. And then her next piece, she performed uh, the music from one of the Studio Ghibli films, House Moving Castle, with a, a piano player. But it was just showing the versatility of those instruments. And yeah, that's something I'd really like those kids to see. Absolutely. I mean, this musical hierarchy that's been cultivated over the years is just so unnecessary because there's so much sharing that comes across genres with music. And Bach himself would have taken inspiration from folk music from well before he was actually writing. And when I was at music college, I was studying at the same time as my husband, who is a Scottish traditional fiddle player. And we were never allowed to share classes together, despite the fact that we were learning the same instrument. We weren't on the same degree, but he actually expressed an interest in coming to our scales class because a scale's a scale, right? Yeah, exactly <laughs> And he that. was told by the head of strings at the time that he wasn't allowed to come, that we didn't mix with the Scottish traditional students. And how stupid is that? Because the amount that we could have learned from each other as musicians, let alone as violinists or fiddle players or whatever label you want to give it. And to think that in our own country of Scotland, Scottish traditional music was seen as a lesser form of music because it wasn't classical, just absolutely baffles me. And it's still something that can be seen in, in bits and pieces today. It's nowhere near as prominent as it used to be because there's been an awful lot of culture changes. But I know exactly what you mean. Is that kind of your experience between the popular music and the classical music culture down in the South? I think it stands out most to me, uh, actually, in popular music and folk music down here. The, the English folk tradition is a bit of a figure of fun, I think. And we've been linked with all sorts of initiatives that don't really show it off in the best light. Like uh, Nigel Farage was using uh, Morris tunes to highlight you know, the, the wonder of England and this kind of British sensibility, things like this. And But there's even an internal elitism in folk music. I absolutely adore English folk music. A part of my archaeology and anthropology study was looking at what we might be able to learn about culture by digging into the hidden meanings of these old songs and amazing tunes hidden there as well. I love that you've just given an absolute pun of digging into there very goodly. Thank you. <laughs> I Doing let it that systematically go. across fields on my knees. <laughs> Sorry, but continue. I couldn't let that go. <laughs> it's it's just such a it's such a shame that it's almost laughed at. As, as a kind of performance medium, uh, traditional English folk music, especially when one of the joys of it is learning English tunes and playing in sessions together. It's a chance just to go and have a musical conversation where it's not about performing to anyone, it's just about being involved. Um, and the same with kind of the Morris music as well. And the ballads, the, some of the ballads are absolutely amazing. There's been a great initiative by uh, George Sansom, uh, the Queer Folk UK um, study, They've poured through the EFTA's archives and found all this great British balladry that may actually contain uh, secret references to queer individuals living, you know, hundreds of years ago who still had their stories told. And none of the collectors were able to iron it out with collector's bias because it was just hidden below the surface. Unbelievable. It's just a shame because there is there's definitely still a sense of divide. 
there's just there just seems to be division everywhere and there's no need for it because it's it's something that creates that snobbery around music in general there will always be people who are better than you at your instrument but there will always be people that are better than you at anything and everything that's just part of being human but the thing that I think all individual musicians have to remember is that you are the only version of yourself and I know that sounds really cheesy but that is almost your greatest asset as a musician you are the only one that can speak your truth that was something I've been talking to Samantha McShane about in the last podcast you are the only one that can speak your own truth to the rest of the world and that is such a powerful thing and it doesn't matter whether you are playing solo with an orchestra or you are play headlining at Glastonbury or you're playing to your local folk club to about 10 people or even just continuing music as a hobby rather than a career. One of the things that I've always hated the title of is amateur orchestra. That instantly degrades and puts down anything that those ensembles are doing just because they're not in the professional music scene. You know, I've had some of my greatest experiences playing with um, retired professionals in what would be called amateur orchestras. I've learned amazing things from those musicians. And it doesn't matter whether the orchestra is earning thousands, hundreds or tens of pounds. It's quite the experience to be sat creating that noise. And if that's accessible for you to be in an amateur orchestra because it's a hobby or you've got other jobs, etc. Why not? Why not enjoy it? Exactly, because music is a community. Being part of an ensemble is being part of a community. And that is yet another one of music's absolute superpowers is the ability to bring people together. I'd be fascinated to know a bit more of how you would deal with criticism, particularly as uh, a composer and a writer in your own music. Because obviously I know you're working with session musicians and you talked about that detachment before where you're able to remove yourself personally when you're nipping into a situation and coming back out. But when you've been part of a band for 10, 12 years and it starts to feel much more personal, how do you cope with that? It's definitely different to the session stuff. I mean, in, in the studio with people you don't know, you are there to fulfill a function and, you know, give it your best. But when someone comes over the headphones from the main room and says, you know, we need to go over that phrase, uh, the timing needs adjusting here, that note needs to be a bit brighter basically leave flat um all of that <laughs> stuff that's fine i can step back from that but you know we released our debut album as the last inklings uh, in october last year and that's the first time that we've come out from under the umbrella of a lot of the traditional folk music we used to play as a trio and now the two of us are writing folk inspired music but we're layering in synthesizers and um like we bought a Moog for the studio just to see what it was like. And you start to kind of worry what people will think of you. But then, of course, the reviews start coming back in and reviews from live performances as well. Hush, close your eyes and try to breathe easy As the sun burns the sky and the day slips too late for ease Just try to breathe deeply We fell long ago On a lost yesterday 
played the Bristol Folk Festival, which was just an amazing experience at St. George's, uh, just at the bottom of Park Street. A gorgeous building it is. You sound great out the box without being plugged in because the acoustic is magic, especially for cellists. Um, it's just got that frequency. And one of the reviews came back that we sounded like a band that should have been stepping out of that series, The Detectorists. Uh, and we were, we were called Parody. And, and actually part of that, some of these reviews, we're both from the South. Both of us are pretty much working class. I certainly am not upper class by any stretch, uh, regardless of my accent. That's just education. We get written off quite a lot as being um, twee because of the way we sound, where we naturally speak. Uh, we get spoken about as if we don't have a cultural identity because we don't have a regional accent from the North. Uh, yeah, so this kind of criticism does start coming back and it's really hard not to take it personally because you want to like say this, like I'm saying to you now, come back at people and say, well, it's not my fault uh, that you've interpreted my voice this way or that you've assumed something about me. And, you know, we do sit down, read these things and kind of have a rant at each other about you know, what we would want to say to those people if we ever met them. Sometimes we have had the chance as well, which is quite <laughs> interesting. But yeah, it's having that judgment from people that don't necessarily know you and they're judging you on a brief snapshot on your life. And it, it does, sometimes it kind of puts a fire under us and it makes us really keen to go out and keep doing things. Um, but it's funny how it can seem disproportionate. So you might get one review of a live gig, for example, that has something just slightly off about it. Despite the fact that at the gig, you know, a queue of people came up to tell you that they really had a great time. They'd love to see you again. Let's buy a CD. It's funny how the waiting isn't equal when you receive that feedback. So, yeah, it's, um, I think the ranting is probably one of the ways we vent that and get it out of our system. And having two of us together makes us so much safer. And our manager is an amazing member of our team. She is. We've described her as a force majeure before. Uh, there is nothing she cannot do. And she is... Uh, She's great at standing next to us and kind of just pushing us on a little bit as well. Yeah, I think that balance of actually venting how you're feeling with support is such a valuable thing. And you have to have people around you. You have to have your people supporting you. Otherwise, it can feel quite, um, you must feel very vulnerable in that position. Yeah, you certainly can. Um, and in some of those situations where, like, we're a bit safer than some people that we know, but um some of my good friends on the folk circuit you know if you think of a lot of folk music you get great singer songwriters and when you boil that down that means that it's a lone person traveling with a guitar on the road by themselves receiving this feedback and criticism without anyone to kind of sound off to in the car on the way home and there's no one sat in that hotel room with them midway through the tour to say nah don't be silly that last gig was amazing so let's not worry about it and we're spared that thankfully uh, by having a great team I do think audiences can forget that you are actually a human being at the other side of the of the fence, if you like, you know, over the invisible barrier between the stage and the audience. People forget that you are a human being with feelings and actually you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable position by sharing a very intimate part of your soul when you're playing with people. And I think because of things like television in particular or constant access to videos on the internet people forget that that is actually a real live person standing there performing to you and they're not going to be auto-tuned there are going to be imperfections and flaws and all of those things there laid bare 
And just because Absolutely. people have paid money to come and actually see you perform, it doesn't mean that, you know, all of a sudden they have some right to comment on things like your appearance, for example. Um, yeah, this is I've, a thing. This is actually a common thing. Yes. I mean, I've had it. I've had it in small amounts when people are kind of commenting on what I look like as the only female member of the band a lot of the time. Uh, so the band I play with, I mean, we've got any number of folks that come and play along with Ian, but when it's the kind of six core members that are out on the road, I tend to be the only female one there unless our, our lovely flautist Fiona is able to come and join us from Ireland. And I always feel really vulnerable because I think, you know, it doesn't matter that I'm standing here holding my instrument and I'm performing. There will be somebody there that's thinking, oh, she looks too fat or she she's not done her hair this way or do you know what I mean? It's so silly. It's absolutely ridiculous. And we tend to see this kind of most actually not necessarily in audience members, but there are certain festivals where I mean, I really won't name them because it, it's not fair. And some of these people have been spoken to, but MCs might be a bit old school introducing people on stage no one's going to introduce me and kind of talk about how resplendent I look in my outfit but you'll you know they might say you know the wonderful multi-instrumentalists whatever introduce us to the stage but a lot of our female colleagues um female presenting colleagues will get introduced you know with something that's nothing to do with their musical ability you know here's the gorgeous such and such here's the, the lovely so and so and it's it's wrong. It makes makes your skin crawl a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when you sign up to be a musician, you have, you know, put yourself out there because you've dedicated yourself to polishing up what you do, however you do it, whether that's, you know, your eight hours of dutiful scales every day or something like that. And it's nothing to do with how you look. But I then mean, at the same time, marketing, social media, the ability to airbrush yourself online, all of these things start feeding back. Like you say, you can't auto-tune yourself on stage and you can't auto-tune your image on stage either. No, and I've never been more aware of it than I have in the last year. Um, having had a baby literally a year ago, she only turned one on Saturday. And I'm so conscious every time I'm going out to do a gig now of trying to choose clothes that are baggier and all this kind of thing. You just think this is ridiculous. You can't help how you look in that moment. It should be about what you sound like. And if the entire audience were to stand there with their eyes closed, it wouldn't matter what you were wearing. So I've actually kind of taken a bit of a stand recently and I've stopped uh, wearing heels on stage because it's just really uncomfortable. And the lads don't I have, have tried to. playing violin in heels. It's, uh, it's not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know what? See if that is your thing. Great have a brilliant time, but it's currently not mine. I would much rather be stood there in my Converse. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I love um, that you were mentioning about social media there. I'd love to hear a bit more about this podcast that you've got coming up. One of the things, this has come up in conversations well, uh, along with my bandmate, we haven't raised these points, but so often when we're traveling on the road, staying with people, meeting up with colleagues in the music industry, they're all talking about similar things and what it amounts to well, kind of long story short is digital burnout this is we've all trained as musicians and that's what we love doing we want to get together we want to play music and we've always understood that it takes a degree of marketing if you'd like to play kind of music as a touring artist that's a slightly different thing that you have to it's a hoop you have to jump through but it's so different now than it was even five years ago we've got marketing departments at art centers and theaters that 
no longer exist after the pandemic. Um, we've got marketing departments that haven't been able to afford to update their skill set. So they, they're not necessarily aware of the best way to use digital marketing, which sadly has like 80% more reach than physical. And all that screen time and you know throwing yourself at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of these different platforms, it can feel quite degrading after a while. And it's really hard because you're you're fighting for for all these metrics, these likes and subscribes and things. They may never turn into real life gigs. They may never become a ticket holder and actually meet you in real life. And you never know what you're actually achieving when you sit there and spend hours doing all of this. And um, I put the time in over lockdown to, to studying it properly, got some hardship funding to do it. And the kind of stuff that I was uncovering, like dark user experience, um, how all of these sites are highlighting things to make you fall into little traps and spend more time stuck on those platforms. And then you question yourself as an artist advertising myself, I'm encouraging other people to spend their time on the screens. And it goes really deep. There are really prime things that it wakes up. Even now, we're talking on a Zoom call, so we record this podcast. And there's this unnatural fronting that's happening. And normally, this face-to-face -face thing that we're having now, you first get, as you will know now, as someone with uh, a little one who's one year old, this is normally an interaction between a parent and a child or two people in a relationship. And so it turns on things in your biology, in your head, that are unnatural because we spent all of this time face-to-face -face with each other really intensely. So all these kind of Zoom concerts, Zoom calls, advertising marketing calls, and constantly having our faces out there, it's doing strange things to our brains. And yeah, I just like to find a way to cut through all of that. So we're inviting a series of specialists and artists to talk on a podcast to kind of help us cut through the noise a little bit. Um, do we really have to spread ourselves out over seven platforms or could we focus on one and just focus our efforts a little bit? Uh, what signs should we watch out for? The digital burnout? How do we recognize it? How do we stop it? Uh, who are some artists that just seem to really be doing well with social media? They've got great rapport with their audience, they're meeting their fans, but it feels sustainable. These are the kind of questions that we want to ask. And importantly, audience members. If our audience all get digital burnout and never log on to Facebook again, who are we even marketing to? Uh, so we want to know what their experience is like at the other end as well, because they are people part of our community that we also want to safeguard. And so this new podcast, Stew Out Over the Autumn, is going to be exploring all of those themes. Working title currently is Limited Bandwidth, with some uh, really lovely sketchy imagery to go with it. And uh, yeah, we're just starting to tie down our specialists now. Sounds absolutely incredible. Um, so it's coming out in the autumn. Do you have a specific release date or are you still kind of in the preparation for that? The pilot episode should be with us uh, in the last week of September. So there's not too long to wait. Brilliant. Just so that I can make sure I can share it with everybody. Well, yes, thank, thank you, you so much for your time, Lee. It's been lovely to chat to you. The question that I've been asking everyone to finish on is if you were speaking to somebody who wanted to um, pursue a career in the music industry from here on in, what advice would you give them if, as if you were speaking to your younger self with the experience you now have? Be more open to marketing, but I don't just mean learning techniques. I mean, uh, you have to lose a bit of your self-consciousness if you're marketing yourself. You have to be your own champion when you do these things. And, you know, I really wish when I was younger that I was the person who would have stood up and said, yes, I can do that. I am good at that. You should book me for this thing. Uh, that would have made such a difference. Um, 
you know, waiting for people to come along and, and see the wondrous skill set, not going to happen. You've got to be prepared to pick yourself out there in so many different ways, whether that's leaping into a random solo or, you know, responding to a studio that said, do you think you can do this? I kind of like the Richard Branson thing, which you like, say yes and just make it up later. Like, get yourself in there. Yeah, that would be my main thing. Just get yourself out there. Be confident. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your podcast, Limited Bandwidth, at the end of September. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to chat with you.